Mumonkon Case 48 Kempo's One Way The Case A monk asked Master Kempo in all earnestness. In a sutra, it says, Ten direction Bhagavats, one way to the gate of Nirvana. I wonder, where is the way? Kempo lifted up his stick, drew a line, and said, Here it is. Later, a monk asked Umon to give instruction about this. Umon held up his fan and said, This fan jumps up to the 33rd heaven and hits the nose of the deity there. When the carp in the eastern sea is struck with a stick, it rains torrents as though a tray of water is overturned. Mumon's commentary. One goes to the bottom of the deepest sea, heaving sand and raising dust. The other stands on the top of the highest mountain and causes white waves to billow up to the sky. On the one hand, they are gripping it tightly. On the other hand, they are letting it loose. So each of them extends a single hand, and together they support this essential principle. It is just like two runners colliding. In this world, there is no one who has realized the truth completely. Examining with the true eye, I find that neither of the old masters knows where the way is. The verse, before a step is taken, the goal is reached. Before the tongue has moved, the speech is finished. Though you may take the initiative point by point, there is still the all-surpassing whole. Good afternoon. This is the middle day of session, and the second day for Kempo's One Way. A koan that, as many koans do, begins to reveal itself ever so subtly and more and more deeply the more we empty the room of our congested mind. So listening to it yesterday and listening to it today, I imagine it's quite a different experience, yes? We ask that you sit in Zazen for Teisho, 
because Taisho is nothing but Zazen. I may speak, so-called I may speak, but before the tongue has moved, the speech has already been given. But if you're not sitting in good Zazen posture, all you hear is the tongue moving. So if you can't sit on your cushion in Zazen, go sit on a chair. What about these Ten Direction Bhagavats, these Buddhas in the Ten Directions? There are several ways to understand what's being said in Surangama Sutra. As I said yesterday, this is a quote from Surangama Sutra. We might see it this way. All Buddhas throughout space and time have only one way to reach nirvana. So today we have 28, 27, 26. I have to allow for two empty spots. 26 Buddhas. 26 Buddhas. One way. To reach nirvana. Or we might see it a little differently. We might see it like this. Throughout space and time, all beings are already Buddha. All 26 already Buddha following this one way. Right? You are taking these seats right now. So this space, this time, you already Buddha following this one way. Okay, so that's another way of seeing this Surangama Sutra statement. And there's a third way, at least one more way. Throughout space and time, every way is the way itself. Every way. So each of you, in your own way, even getting in your own way, is the way itself. When we have been sitting for three days, this begins to make true sense. Sounds like nonsense otherwise, right? It begins to be, oh, 
even in my muddled, getting in the way, way. I can't help but be on the way. Can't help it. This question, what is the way? What is the way to nirvana? As we heard yesterday, this monk is asking in all earnestness, and each of us is asking of this moment, in all earnestness, what is this? And some of you know the case in the Mumon Khan, case 31, with the old woman sitting in a snack shop at the foot of Mount Tai and monks coming to ask her the direction. What is the way to Mount Tai? Mount Tai was very sacred place the dwelling of Manjushri Bodhisattva, Bodhisattva of wisdom. So each monk would come along, what is the way to this sacred mountain, Mount Tai? And the old woman would always give the same response. Who remembers? Go straight on. And then what? Right. Monk said, okay. And she would say, fine young monk, but he too goes that way. Imagine being told, go straight on. This is what Kempo told this monk, right? Took his stick, made a straight line. Go straight on. The still feeling lost. We often have this feeling of being lost, right? In our ordinary life, but particularly in session, having over and over again some difficult scenario on replay. No. Rewind. Okay? Didn't get it that time. Go straight on. (laughs) Tape loop. Finally, we just say, I don't get it. I'm lost. Or even more wonderfully, we may say, I give up. This is a really crucial point in our practice. And many, many of us have experienced in our lives this utter sense of I give up 
which undoubtedly brings us here. So, with great happiness, we can thank this unfortunate past. See it as so helpful. All our evil karma itself is producing great Buddha land. That's what we're here doing. So never hate your delusions, okay? Never bemoan your past, your ancient twisted karma is responsible for your being right here on this way. Or you may feel right here in this being lost. Being lost is really great. I love to get lost. This is very distressing to my husband. Because he likes to know where he's going. (laughs) And I think it's true. If anyone has some kind of strong anxiety, they want to know where they are and where they'll be tomorrow. And anyway, so when we were first together, this is before we were married. It's amazing to me that he wanted to get married after this experience. (laughs) We went to Maine. So it was going to be 4th of July weekend. And this is also amazing to me now that I've known him for so many years, but we didn't have a reservation. (laughs) I think maybe he thought I had arranged it. So we got in the car, driving, 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 wonderful, beautiful, all night. Maybe not all night, that trip. All day. And we got to Maine, and we were hungry. Yeah, it was around the end of the afternoon, and the sun was getting low in the sky, and we were... Some of you know on that road that goes along the coast, right? Route 1. And there wasn't anything around. We were getting hungrier. So I said, turn there, turn there. So we go down this little road, and it becomes a dirt road. It's very beautiful, but absolutely no sign of civilization whatsoever. And as we're driving in this kind of rutted road, I see a sign. This is not mystical. This is... (laughs) I see an old billboard. 
it's completely impossible to read. It's all torn and faded. Whatever was written there has almost vanished. But just barely, I can make out the sign, and it says, restaurant. So I say, we're on the right road. <laughs> Keep going. We go, and if you know these peninsulas in Maine, you can go for a long time. And we keep going, and he's really getting distressed. And all of a sudden, there's an even smaller road that goes off in one direction. I say, turn, turn, turn. <laughs> and we go down this narrow lane, and we end up next to a kind of three-decker white frame building overlooking the sea and a marina. And this is totally unmarked. There'd be no way you would ever know it was there unless you had a boat. But it turns out that this is the restaurant. <laughs> and they don't worry about anyone in a car finding them because it's so well known by everyone in boats. And so we get out and we have this wonderful meal sitting overlooking the sun, last rays of sun going down, just fantastic. Really amazing food. And we're so happy. But then he says to me, so where are we going to sleep? <laughs> so I say, I don't know, but I'll go in the kitchen and find out. I go into the kitchen and I say, Where's a good place to stay? And remember, this is not near anything. So they say, um, ha, do you have a boat? No. <laughs> oh, well, you have to go back to the main highway and then go down to, and they explain this whole thing. There may be this place called Ocean Point Inn. It's not far from Booth Bay Harbor, so maybe some of you have found it. So again, feeling a great sense of, uh, I don't know what it is, you know, this feeling of being lost and, and having an adventure and, and being surprised by whatever comes and having no worry about any of it. But this is very selfish. This is the way I'm feeling. This is not the way my poor husband is feeling. But anyway, we go on. And we drive and we drive and we drive and we finally, it's dark, we get to a place, we have to ask a few times, they say, yes, it is down that road. And we go down that road and the road ends and the ocean is there. It's just ocean. And the front wheels are in the ocean. <laughs> we back up. I'm really starting to feel a little nervous, <laughs> not to mention lost. And we go back to the place where we asked directions, which is another 20 minutes back. So we go back there and they say, oh yeah, we had this bad storm and the road got washed out, but you can go. You just have to make a right where the ocean is. <laughs> okay, back in the car. It's dark, it's really dark. We go, we go back to the ocean, 
the waves are lapping the shore. We turn right, sure enough, there's the way. And just a few yards down, there's Ocean Point Inn. And we go in and they say, well, we don't have any room at the inn, <laughs> but we do have this little cottage, which you can have. Ah, so we go into the cottage, and then in the middle of the night, I'm startled awake by this feeling that there's been maybe an earthquake. The whole cottage is shaking. Andy, what's going on? Or maybe it's a bear underneath the cottage. Could you please go find out what's going on? Well, we couldn't figure it out. So we went back to sleep. In the morning, we wake up and there's the ocean. Here's our cottage. There's the ocean. The tide had come in. We were literally staying right at the ocean's edge. It was phenomenal. So this is a silly story that I tell you because we so often don't want to trust that we are on the way. And we always are. And even getting lost and even getting drowned, we are on the way. I see somebody raising her eyebrows. That part of the way I don't want, thank you very much. <laughs> So this leaving it up to the universe and doing what has to be done, this is always our practice. We can't control a thing. All we can do is be right here, ready, ready to experience this unfolding path that we're on. I promised that I would go into the commentary today, so I will. We have here one goes to the bottom of the deepest sea, heaving sand and raising dust. So this is Kempo. This is his. The shin, giving it away, giving it away, raising dust, drawing this line, okay, responding, responding. There is nothing I can say, and yet I must respond. So heaving sand and raising dust, going from the essence to some kind of pointer in the phenomenal world. The other stands on the top of the highest mountain. This is Umon, okay? Highest mountain, vast, boundless void. And answering the question, causing white waves to billow up to the sky. Once again, coming from essence, giving it away. 
on the one hand, they are gripping it tightly. On the other hand, they are letting it loose. What does this refer to? This is a well-known, uh, well-known phrase in Zen. Holding fast and letting go. Gripping it tightly and letting it loose. Depriving, killing, and giving it away. Giving life. At the same time, this is teaching. Right? Coming from and giving words to what cannot be spoken of. And not seeing them as two separate entities, as the essence over here and phenomena over there. One, one, simultaneous. Now, this empty sky and billowing up of waves. And so these two come together, holding fast and letting go, colliding instantaneously, these runners colliding. And so each of them is extending a single hand, this one hand, this one way. It is your way. It is not something you can get from another. One hand, one way, your way. And together they support the essential principle. Then Mumon goes on, in this world there will be no one who has realized the truth completely. So what does it say in the Diamond Sutra about Buddha? Hmm? Does Buddha have a teaching to expound? Right answer. No. Can it be said that the truth is something to realize completely instead of partially? Can we speak that way? Conditionally? There will be no one who has realized the truth completely. Disappointing, huh? What about that way to nirvana? Is it a partial way? Conditional way? Almost their way? And then Mumon says, examining with the true eye, I find that neither of the old masters knows where the way is. If you know it, what happens? Hmm? You're saying something out there? You have to speak up. If you know it, what? If you know it, she says, you don't know it. Interesting paradox. Knowing something we want to grasp, right? 
hold on to? What is the way? Give it to me right now. I want it. If one of these masters says, okay, I'll tell you how to do it, right? And they both do, you know. Here I draw a line. And the other one says, oh, this fan jumps up to the 33rd heaven, right? Or they might say, I don't know. Unity Church, some of you may have seen this, has a sign out. And the sign says, somebody is going to be speaking on Sunday, so you may want to go. <laughs> the sign says, spiritual evolution. Maybe you would like to evolve. If so, <laughs> what we are doing here is spiritual revolution. Revolution. Nasty stuff. Directly hitting that old deity on the nose. Remember? Third day of session. If you still are finding a little voice inside whining, <laughs> complaining, preferring, what you have to do, and here's the revolutionary act, what you have to do is go against the grain. Because usual response with the grain is, well, I can just find a little bit more comfortable spot, or as someone was saying, if I can just kind of wiggle a little bit and, and you know, change the way my sleeves are and all this kind of thing, I can somehow feel a little less of what I don't like. The revolutionary nature of our practice is we, we see that happening and we just go in the other direction. What is the other direction? What is this? This is one way. One way. Everything is saying, oh, move a little bit, move a little bit. Just don't move. This in itself is revolutionary. It doesn't go along with anything that we have received in the way of conventional wisdom, right? It's not conventional, this practice. Nothing conventional about it. You know, we have forms that we uphold and sometimes people misunderstand forms as being conventions. They are not conventions. Forms are nothing but revealing this power 
of the way. At every moment, whether doing kinin, sitting on the cushion, walking in the zendo, walking on the path, lying down to go to bed, brushing our teeth. The forms continue. They hold and uphold the teachings. What are the teachings? The four noble truths. So somebody says there are none. Somebody else says the four noble truths. Pardon? This way. Pardon? Useful means. Anyone else? Pardon? The Buddha has nothing to teach, similar to what he said. Anyone else? Hmm? Direct hit. So upholding the teachings. Yesterday I spoke about Shakyamuni Buddha being asked is love and compassion a part of what you teach? And what did he answer? He said no. It's the whole of what I teach. To really understand this means to concentrate within and testify to the truth of self-nature as no nature. Or to forget about all those words and just what? Not very convincing, but (laughs) I'll take it as a stab. To have this concentration within, this is zazen, not something you leave on the cushion. People often ask, well, after session is over, how do I make this a part of my life? Oh, my God. What have you been doing during session? Moment by moment. In the Tenzo, in the Zendo, in your tent. Moment by moment. How you move. How you pick up a spoon. How you leave the bathroom. This is nothing but the one way. This is right effort. Right effort is so natural, so not forced, so attentive. Form is a way of listening, listening to the voice of the Dharma, 
doesn't have to be thunder, okay? Silence. Manifesting in the palm of your hand right now. How can you casually toss it away and then ask, well, how shall I continue my practice when I'm not in session? How can I make my practice one with my life? The point is, this is the monastery. Wherever you are, whenever you are, this is training. No need to shave your head. No need to do a thousand days at a monastery. Right here, in your everyday path. This one way is revealing if you're listening, if you're looking, if you're paying attention. It's never elsewhere. We always think it's somewhere else. Someone else has it. What is the way to nirvana? You've got it. You're on it. So when you find yourself sort of miasma of swamp mind and you realize oh, moo, right don't do anything about the gap okay, don't analyze it don't say, oh, I lost moo I wonder how I get back to moo I don't know why I can't seem to do this Forget about all that. Immediately, immediately, without any gap whatsoever, comes right back. If you let it all by itself, because it was never gone. Yeah, maybe your attention wandered. No need to reprimand yourself. Once again, this compassion for yourself, of course you wander off. That's what we do. No big deal. But when we notice, immediately. Holding fast. This and seeing this wandering itself is nowhere else but the path. Not despising the wandering. The less despising we inflict on ourselves, the less concrete the absence seems. Right? Absent-mindedness. We make it something. And it becomes, of course, more powerful than anything else. The more we hate it, the more we give it energy. So give your energy to move. Nothing but. And you will find the gate of nirvana has been long open. But you may not want to go in. That's okay. 
and soul. What else? The verse. Before a step is taken, the goal is reached. Before a step is taken, already there is no way other than where your foot is right now, where you are sitting right now. Always, already. There is a, a saying, what is nirvana? Samsara is nirvana. The only thing that keeps it from being realized as nirvana is what? We don't like it. That's it. We prefer feeling a certain way to feeling another way. And so we say, I don't like this, and so we suffer. It's totally up to us. There is a section in On Believing in Mind, which we read one of those earlier days of session. And it says, in the mind harmonious with the way, we have the principle of identity in which we find all strivings quieted. Doubts and irresolutions are completely done away with, and the right faith is straightened. There is nothing left behind. There is nothing retained. All is void, lucid, and self-illuminating. There is no exertion, no waste of energy. This is where thinking never attains. This is where the imagination fails to measure. We chanted that, remember? So it sounds different today. So I thought I would read it to you again. This is really it. Always and already, before the tongue has moved, the speech is finished. What can be added? It's already been preached. Cicadas, thunder, the voice of the butterflies, the voice of the air conditioner. It's so important that you don't fall into the trap of nature and uh, whatever we want to call what we make, machines. Big trap. The sermons of insentient beings are always being preached. course, when we put words to this, it is circumscribed, boxed in, can't breathe. So before the tongue has moved, already finished. No concept. Anything we say is superfluous. 
for an hour, I have been superfluous, purifying my evil karma. <laughs> so then, Muman's verse goes on. Though you may take the initiative point by point, though you may make the most diligent effort following the six paramitas, preparing to take the precepts on Sunday, point by point, you must know there is still the all-surpassing whole. Now, you may think, listening to this, if you didn't read it, that this whole is spelled W-H-O-L-E, but it is not. It is spelled H-O-L-E. This all-surpassing whole. Right. Like that. Big yawn. <laughs> All surpassing. We can all fall in. What is this whole besides that? Or including that? What is this whole? Hmm? No. my favorite new word that I invented. It is emptiful. Right here, right now. But we have to be careful because the wholeness of this whole can easily become a dark pit the moment we bring any conceptual thinking to it. I wanted to end today's Tay show, yes, there is an end, <laughs> with a few words on <clears throat> our ceremony last night, Mizu Sagaki, in which we invited <clears throat> the spirits, in which we showed our gratitude for all that we are given in our lives, past, present, and future, in which we show this gratitude through ancient syllables, dranis that don't make any sense, quote-unquote. We don't know what we're chanting for much of what we chant. Some we may be able to read in translation. These are the names of the venerable ones, the Buddhas, and we are paying homage, and that's all very well and good. But what does it really mean? And then there are these Dharani that can't even be translated. So you may think, well, why can't we say thank you in English? Why can't we say come on in? in English. Well, you may. Go ahead. No problem. But as you have found out, those of you who have been working intensively with Mu, there is something about that syllable itself. 
it has a certain power and in any language that power prevails who in Chinese no in English and this Mizu Sagaki, the fact that we don't know what we're chanting in terms of our analytical, intellectual, grabby, I want to put it in a category mind, is all the better. Because guess what? It allows us to open our hearts. And what are we doing? We're making offerings of ourselves giving rice and this water, branch of water, is a way of saying, I give my life. Thank you so much. I give my life to Buddha, Dharma, Sangha. So, always our rational nature is such that we say, well, it's just so kind of a coincidence that a certain storm comes along. It's just a coincidence that as the altar is being prepared for last night's Mizu Sagaki, this powerful storm gathers. All these spirits. Christine, who had to take care of her children yesterday and today at this time, arrived back just as we were beginning. And she said it was really incredible. She was standing on the platform out there listening and watching, and every time the gong was struck, the sky lit up with lightning. Just a coincidence. Just a bunch of syllables in some esoteric Dharani. You can lead your life that way. Fine. Go ahead. But don't complain. All right? Because... You're cutting yourself off from what we call esoteric, which is nothing but this very place filled with spirits, a spirit world. Sometimes we call the spirit world trees. Sometimes we call the spirit world bees. We have many names for the spirit world, but sometimes, sometimes we call the spirit world Namu suryo boya toto gyato ya tojito yen suyo suyo boya suyo boya suyo somoko. There are some wonderful notes at the end of the little booklet of Sagaki that Eda Roshi wrote. And I just want to share a little bit with you. The chanting of Dai Sagaki comes to practitioners of Zen through the tradition of esoteric Buddhism. And then he describes what it is that we do. And at Obon next week, I hope every single one of you who didn't have to fly here or drive for hours and hours will come because during the service, the names of the deceased are called and little floating lanterns are set out on 
the creek with the ardent wish that their spirits will reach the other shore, attain liberation from ceaseless wandering in the darkness of ignorance. Literally translated set means offering or charitable deed. Gaki is hungry ghost. Ghost who has no way to swallow because this long, narrow, thin neck cannot allow any food or water to reach stomach. It doesn't strictly refer to a deceased person or spirit, but to a human condition all are subject to, a result of eons of accumulated neediness, the karma of habitual selfishness. So don't think that we are doing something for some sort of abstract sphere. This is you. Daisagaki is said to have come from Kanzeon Bodhisattva to Shakyamuni Buddha during one of his past mortal incarnations and later transmitted from Buddha to his disciple Ananda to dispel the hungry ghost condition. Now, some of you will enjoy this paragraph. In the rational world, already you feel better, (laughs) approaching the altar during Daisagaki, chanting to offer food and water to unseen beings may seem archaic or even childish. But we must first acknowledge the definition of Sagaki as the practice of charity, the practice of offering. With a humble spirit, we admit and accept that we ourselves are the hungry ghosts, always craving, always addicted to comfort. Just give me a little bit more of this, a little bit less of that. Huh? Even though our intellect may have some reservation in chanting something it doesn't understand, the real meaning is revealed by our action. And this action resounds. So, let us sit with this resounding one-way action and tonight we will once again invite the spirits invite these mysterious beings who have been and continue to support not only our sitting our very lives. Hi. Obon, August 6, 2006. Teisho by Roko Niosho. We have just paid homage to the Buddhas, the Dharma, and the Sangha throughout space and time to our great teacher, Shakyamuni Buddha, to Kanzeon, the great compassionate Bodhisattva, and to Ananda, 
the expounder of the Buddha's teaching. We have paid homage to the various forms in which Buddhas manifest, including Amitabha, the immeasurable light and life, Tathagata. We have purified food and drink and have offered them to spiritual beings as numerous as the sands of the Ganges or the rocks in the banks of Onondaga Creek. We have offered prayers for these beings' rebirth in blissful realms and prayers that they may take refuge in the three treasures and awaken to supreme enlightenment. We have chanted the following verse. By the practice of this meritorious deed, we pray that we repay what we owe to our father and mother who have done all they could for our sakes. May those who are still alive continue to enjoy their happy and prosperous lives forever, while those who are no more with us be released from suffering and born in the land of bliss. We are here practicing together in this wondrous temple because of our fortunate karma, which encompasses the many acts of kindness and concern on the part of our parents, our families, friends, and teachers, both known and unknown. This Obon ceremony is mystical. As we have chanted Sagaki, which means offerings to the hungry ghosts during summer session and afterwards, leading up to this evening, we have seen again and again how the spirit world responds directly and mysteriously to our prayers and our intensive mind with their own invitation to enter into this mystical and very ordinary realm. When we offer our hearts openly, And without cynicism, what may be called esoteric practice becomes just the most natural call and response. We invoke the spirits, and they respond with thunder and lightning, with cicadas and summer heat. As we beckon the spirits At our opening fire yesterday evening, a flock of wild geese flew over from the south, and the luminous three-quarter moon smiled down. Some of you may remember these notes from the Daisagaki chanting book. I wanted to read this in case you don't remember or you weren't here when I read it during session. Not all of Daisagaki is translatable. There are parts called Shingon or Durrani, cosmic language. They do not have an intelligible meaning in any human tongue, but if chanted with sincerity 
and deep concern, they constitute an offering from one's own heart. The charitable giving of energy, which transcends names, identities, and fixed concepts. Mindful of this energy that flows seamlessly throughout space and time, we are overcome with gratitude. All the slights and abuses and injustices we may have brooded over in the past are seen as the teachings they are to liberate us from our egotistical and deluded upside-down views. And indeed, as the Diamond Sutra reminds us, by virtue of our misfortunes, the effects of our past is worked out. And now we are in a position to realize supreme enlightenment. It is right here, right now. Obon is a rare, rare and powerful time. Not only to honor all those who have passed on, but to realize the unity of life and death in this multi-dimensional realm. It is a time not only to feel deep gratitude for these beings' support and teachings, but to rededicate ourselves to this endless path, the way of love and compassion, the way of realization and wisdom. As we bid our departed loved ones farewell in a few moments, let us remain open to the emanation of this one mind revealing and actualizing in every moment this one mind from which all flows and to which all returns. To conclude, I will read a haiku by Son Roshi. And it was written in July 1965. And he said about this haiku in his journal first, it is said that bone the day of the dead, or Urabon, which came from Ulambana in Sanskrit, means being hung upside down. How can we bring about 
freedom from such suffering. His haiku. Within this torment, wonderful coolness, moon of the bone.